and welcome to What Goes Around podcast. I'm Eamon Murta. I'm Anne Frankenstein. And in this week's show, we look forward to Anne getting her big break on Six Music. We're also chatting to the inimitable DJ Random about the hard work and the sacrifice it takes to become a professional scratch DJ. And we are going back, way back, back into time with DJ Man Parrish. Yes, the electro pioneer from New York City is going to talk to us. And this is a rollercoaster ride of an interview. we got names being dropped like Andy Warhol, Bianca Jagger, Holston, all of the fashion set of the 70s and 80s. Listen, it's a great interview and he is a mad character. We love him. He is a hilarious and brilliant man. This was a really, really fun uh, and unpredictable chat. So, uh, <laughs> Wasn't it? Wasn't it? <laughs> shall we? Shall we pod? Let's not hesitate. Let's no, let's not through. hesitate. We've got much pod to get through. It's a packed show. Let's go. Let's pod. pod, 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 pod. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there's only one place to start today, and that is with me saying, Anne Frankenstein. <sighs> oh my goodness, what goes around? <laughs> what a setup. Well, I have some news. So, uh, I guess by the time this goes out, I'll be midway through my my little stint, at, uh, or I'll be just about to begin stint. my stint at, um, at Six Music. I'm uh, covering for Chris <laughs> Hawkins for two weeks. Um, thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, that's terrifying. Um, yeah, You're so, so proud. I'm, thank you. I'm doing well. Don't be proud yet. I haven't done it yet. Who knows yeah. what's going to happen? We're proud now. We'll be consoling later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you say exactly. terrible things on it. That's the beautiful moment. The beautiful moment is when you get given the thing to do before you have to mm. start it. Do you know what I mean? You can just sit in that moment where you're like, ah. Oh, I don't have to do this thing yet, but I feel very validated by the fact that I've been given this opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it's going to be good. I'm doing it for Manchester. I'm going up to Salford mm-hmm. um, for the two weeks. And I love Manchester, as you know. And, uh, I told you you would, didn't I? Didn't you I? You did. Yes, you did. Another thing you've been right about. I'm going to um, add that to my list then. You should. It's on the list. <laughs> Three things now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, going up there, it's going to be a very early start. I think I'm going to have to wake up at like 3 a.m. every day that I'm there Oof. for a start at 5. It's 5 a.m. to 7.30, taken over from uh, from Chris Hawkins, a very seasoned 6FM DJ who has a very, um, a very tight-knit uh, listenership, who are very protective mm. Like, uh, nice, but but definitely, you know, protective of the show in that slot, so. I, d- I can imagine the scene of, like, you know, people walking their dogs or whatever very early mm. in the morning, just going, oh, strangers come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, like, it's it's cliquey, I think. But I went up there for training last week and met the production team, who are absolutely lovely, mm-hmm. and went into the beautiful big studio in Media Ooh, City and saw it the sun was shining. It's very posh. It was just really, really nice. It's nice to just nice to be in a different studio you know nice to to uh, dig into the um the music and stuff that's on their playlist it's so broad you know obviously it's six music it's a no-brainer thing to say but it's like mm. just the the work that they do to make sure that the music is as as broad and as good as possible mm. uh, is just incredible to see and um it's just an honor and a privilege i mean i've been listening to six music since the very beginning and i feel like it's a radio station for people like you and me, like people, is, people yeah. to whom music is more than just 
something that they casually enjoy. I, I'm really, really very proud of you. Even if you mess it up now, <laughs> you wait. everything's going to be fine. I'm very, that very proud not. of you, but I'm probably going to listen to it on catch up. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably safer to listen to it on catch up because I can tell you don't. So maybe skip this one, try the next one. But it should be, but you know, the weird thing is, I mean, there's lots of weird things about it. It feels very surreal because Six Music is kind of, you know, obviously it kind of nearly got axed and it was rescued by Mm. listeners and fans. And so it has this sort of, like with anything with cult appeal, the people who love it have this kind of ownership over it. Mm. And even though my listenership on Jazz FM is, is possibly bigger than than what the the early morning show gets on six music people talk about it i mean i've had so many alert google alerts to like my name coming up in on forum conversations and all this kind of thing it is very strange Uh to hear to 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 look at what people are are saying about you on the internet that's a very weird experience (laughs) the the talk of the town Oh, well, I think that's good because, you know, like I think, you know, as you said, Six Music is the broad minded music person's choice. Yeah. And I think that is what What Goes Around is all about as well. Yes. You know, we are broad minded people. We like all kinds of music and like to showcase, you know, everybody's interest so everyone can see what the interest is rather than sort of sit there and say, this is cool, this isn't. Because uh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly. bullshit, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the station where you take a moment to assess whether whether you like something or not. It doesn't have to be familiar or nostalgic or anything like that. It, it goes deeper uh, than that. So I'm very and, excited. And you might bump into Iggy Pop in the canteen. I don't know if he's up in Manchester. It's a bit of a satellite up there. Who knows who I'll bump into? Oh, I've got this image of like, you know, the lunchtime <laughs> thing where there's a queue with this like Tom Ravenscroft and Iggy Pop and Marianne Hobbs. And we're all <laughs> fighting over the last sausage roll in the, in, the, in the vegan section. I mean, I did see Danny Dyer coming out of Broadcast Centre when I was doing a uh, continuity shift the other day. That was pretty exciting. I also saw Louis Theroux in the canteen once and I knew it was him. Obviously, I recognised him, but I, I was able to confirm it was him because there was a Wi-Fi network called Louis' iPhone, <laughs> which was available <laughs> when I was sitting next to him. Well, listen, if the, if the radio thing falls through, that a career as a private detective might come down. <laughs> I am way, good at celebrity it? spotting. I do enjoy celebrities. That might be my downfall, yeah. actually. As, uh, as I do a, a bit more high-profile radio stuff, I enjoy celebrities very much. When I was working for Sony, uh, we had an office in Great Marlborough Street in Soho. And, you know, that place, because there's so many casting agents and voiceover mm. places and, you know, just it's screening cinemas. So it's just chocker full of famous people wandering around all the time. And then because we were always seeing these various famous people, we decided to get a spreadsheet and, and like, sort of you know keep track of who'd seen who. But then we thought, oh, this is a bit standard though, isn't it really? I mean, because like, yeah, sure, you, you saw Sylvester Stallone go past in a limo the other day. That's great. But what we really want to know is like, who are the low rent kind of crap celebrities that are still just bumping along the bottom of this particular pool? <laughs> and so we started this spreadsheet and it was like the aim was they, we were kind of every lunchtime we got together. So who have you seen? And then we'd have a little rating section and some notes, and um, we were trying to decide who had seen the uh, most niche celebrity possible. So um, a friend of mine uh, saw Bridget Nielsen coming out of one of the things. We thought that's quite good. She's not bad. This is pretty good. It's pretty good. And then someone else spotted Chris Tarrant, but that was quite you know he was quite um, yeah because who Tarrant wants is maybe a big deal. 
He was a big deal, yeah. yeah. So that didn't really... And so we were looking for smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, we saw the weather lady, Sean, with the wide mouth. Oh, yeah. And that was looking like it was going to be the winner because we had like an end date where we were going to like have a judge and everything. And then my friend Kate came up with this absolute world-class, low-rent celeb killer sighting. She ended up sharing a lift with Jin the dog from Britain's Got Talent. Not, not even a human, a dog. <laughs> was the dog? Is was that its talent that it was able to get in a lift and uh, travel itself around? <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just going. What floor do you want? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't know what its talent was. I think it just did tricks and mm. you know did someone had trained dog it stuff. probably with a whip, I imagine. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so Jin the dog was our uh, our low rent celebrity spot of the year. That's my metric for where I want to be. So I often like when I'm in the continuity booth doing BBC Two, obviously I have to sit there watching loads of telly and my shift always begins with Richard Osman's House of Games. And mm. I always think if I could be on Richard Osman's House of Games, I mean, I'd be dr- it would be a humiliating experience for me. <laughs> but that would mean that I've sort of reached the sort of, you know, EFG level celebrity status. <laughs> That's really what I'm what I'm going for. That I, I would be I would be perfectly happy with that. So I, I want to see you on supermarket sweep. Yeah. <laughs> supermarket sweep, I mean that that's kind of more my that's more my wheelhouse, just grabbing yeah. things and shoving yeah. them into a trolley. <laughs> you don't so, want to get involved in all this quiz business. No, I really, I feel well. like that would be very exposing for me. Although, I w- Crystal Maze, Celebrity Crystal Maze, they do get oh, to wear amazing boiler suits. We yeah. could be a team. I just I'm, want I'm, the boiler suit. I'm good at that Crystal Maze stuff. I'm terrible well, at everything. Ex-game designer. I, I designed Oh, yeah, stuff. of course. I think we actually did once do a Crystal Maze game. Anyway, listen, we're all very proud of you and all of us here at What Goes Around, which means me and (laughs) and the listeners, uh, we are all wishing you the very best of luck. And I'm sure you will be brilliant. And don't forget the little people who put you there. (laughs) I won't mention the little people, though, because the little people don't really like when you call them little people. As we've learned. That's yeah, true, yeah. <laughs> All the big, the mighty, mighty people. I mean, getting up in the morning is going to be the, my, first, uh, my first challenge. Yeah, the last time I was moving around at that hour of the day, I was still awake from the nightfall. Yes, this is the, this is the thing. I'm going to have to get up at 3am. It's very unnatural. I've got one of those loomy alarm clock things. If anyone has any recommendations. Now, I do like, I'm thinking maybe if I get a bit of hardcore music on the go when I wake mm. up. Teen Idols have a track which is about 40 seconds long called Get Up and Go, which is basically just screaming. I think that might be a track to help get me out of bed. Tim might not appreciate that so much. Listen, the, the positive thing is that you really like going to sleep. So you'll, yeah. be, able to, you'll be able to get to sleep really early. And that, that's I mean, I do state. start falling asleep around 7pm, so it's kind of perfect. perfect. Um, but yeah, yeah fine. I, uh, I guess the next the next time we have a proper conversation, it will all be done and we'll, we'll have a verdict on whether or not it worked out or not. We'll have to see. Well, join me for cigars and brandy next episode, fam. <laughs> Because we're going to be famous by then, or at least you are. (laughs) Now, one of the most tedious and annoying things about being a DJ is when people come up to you and make that scratchy, scratchy hand gesture at you. Or worse still, touch the vinyl and attempt to scratch themselves. Mate, never touch the vinyl. These are the same people who might mind turning a steering wheel to Lewis Hamilton in case he'd forgotten how a car works. It's particularly annoying that they assume it's an easy thing going wiki-wiki on the decks. 
Scratching, or turntablism, is in fact legendarily hard to do and requires years of diligent practice to get it right. Our guest today, DJ Random, a regular at DJ Championships for over three decades and veteran of the Wheels of Steel, also a founder member of the UK's premier scratching team, The Steel Devils, whose incredible genre-hopping sets are the stuff of legend. Today we want to talk about the real art of turntablism, what it is, what it takes and why it's so bloody hard to do. How are you? Thank you. I am great. Thank you for asking me on. Um, that is the best intro I've heard for a long time. <laughs> well, it is a truth, isn't it? I mean, and how many times a week does someone do the scratchy gesture at you when you're playing? Is it literally every time? Because I think it is for me. <laughs> I, it's gotten to the point where I don't tell people what I do for a living anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you just want to knock those people out. Do you, do you find that you're picky about who you talk to about what you do just in case they do the wiki wiki motion at you? I just, after 30, 35 years of it, you kind of get used to it. And it's uh, it's still really fucking irritating. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about what turntablism is and how you got into it. Okay, basically turntablism is the manipulation of vinyl using turntables to basically change whatever you're playing. You can do live remixes, you can enhance the records, you can just completely tear the records apart. It is always going to be done on turntables with records, hence the term turntablism. But I first started scratching when I was about 14, 15, so we're looking at about 1984. I was just fascinated by it. Like the first tune I heard that was really caught my attention was a tune called uh, Breaking in Space. I think it was Keymatic on one of the Crucial Electros. I just sat there and thought, what the fuck is that noise? Right. And at the time, we had no internet, so it wasn't easily available to find out how it was done so i started messing around like sort of late 84 by 85 i'd kind of pieced together what was going on by seeing like a couple of films documentaries like buffalo girls the arena documentary wild style stuff like that by 85 i'd got two turntables the pivotal moment for me was really uh 1986 and i went to uh capital venture day in battersea park and i watched um dj pogo Cutmaster swift uh, DJ Supreme, Undercover, DJ. I could see up front and personal exactly how it was done. Cutting breaks, scratching, and I was just, I was sold. You know, I was i was a graffiti writer up until that point. I just stopped bombing. Uh, the BMX got tucked away in the garage, never to be seen for about 10 years, I think. And uh, that was it from that time on. Well, it's just downhill, really. Uh, <laughs> all my money's gone on records. All just sitting at home, scratching repeatedly. <laughs> Mum and dad are going fucking batshit. It's like, turn that shit off. Uh, started doing parties. Got the usual, can't you just play the record? No, fuck off. And uh, a couple of years later, I saw the DMC competition. I thought, you know what? I'm going to go and do that. I went to the Albert Hall in 88. And uh, it was just incredible to see that sort of stuff in that environment, you know, one of yeah. Britain's premier venues to see the world's best DJs. And that was a massive streak of arrogance come through me then just thinking, God, you know what, I'm better than half of these people. And I said to my, my mate at the time, I said, you know what, I'm going to fucking be there next year. And uh, 89, I entered and uh, won my first heat straight away. I, I was then a DMC champion, had the jacket. Yeah, I've just done it ever since then. And to, you know, be here now, 35 years down the line, it's just, you know, incredible. I never dreamt that I'd be doing that. Most people would just call it a waste of fucking time, money, uh, <laughs> life. 
but you know for hip-hop and turntablism which as far as i'm concerned are intrinsically linked then i'm still here this is what i do and it's uh it's probably what i'm gonna do until i die i tell you what i really like is that um like the two things that link rather weirdly is that if you're a dmc champion you get yeah. the jacket the only yeah. other place i know that happens is when you win the golf do you know what <laughs> that's you are the first person that i've spoken to like outsiders that's clocked it I spoke to DJ Pogo and Swift, who are very good friends of mine, and um, they said that the idea for the jacket came from the golf. Really? They said, there yeah, you yeah. You can ask you 100%, right? The, one of the only reasons I entered that competition was for the fucking coat. I was going to ask, so you obviously got into it right at the beginning of when yeah. this whole culture was infiltrating yeah. the UK. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was 1990 by the time that you were, you know... Uh, got into the finals of the yeah. GMC championships. How did the how did the culture change? I would say by about eighty eight it was starting to be a thing. So from that time on it started to get you know, people were like, Oh, you know, it's not just a hip hop thing because we were taking it, you know, beyond, you know, cutting breaks where we were doing some crazy shit. The the technical scratch patterns were starting to be created like people through like people like cash money and stuff uh and spin bad with the transformer technique you know that that just elevated everything beat juggling was starting to be acknowledged for people like Cutmaster swift and steve d and then it, when the house exploded on the scene right people didn't want hip-hop in the clubs no more right mm -hmm. things started to get a bit quiet so from about 91 till about 94 95 it was kind of quiet but in the background, massive technical, you know, advances were being made with equipment and D DJ skills. And then it's like 95, 96, it was kind of a renaissance in turntablism. And a lot of people that had been around in the late 80s that you hadn't really heard much of all came back. And then from the mid 90s, that was it. Turntablism per se was a thing. You know, I, I can't deny that, not just for myself, but for the rest of the Steel Devils, that from the late 90s into the mid uh, 2000s everyone was doing real well mm. I, was, I was teaching at the you know the academy of contemporary music for Vestax, and not even just mm. teaching at a master class lecturer i was like who the fuck is going to let me in their school <laughs> <laughs> so here's the, here's the thing right so yeah. everyone in the world who sees a, a pair of decks can't help but want to do that motion yeah. the scratchy scratchy but give us an idea of how much practice you have to put in to get to the level that you're at. For example, when I when I finally sussed what to do, and I'd been to the Albert Hall in '88, I was like, right, I'm gonna fucking do this. I didn't even have technics, right? I'm not from a rich family. I, you know, I, all my money just went on records. So when we got to like the last sort of seven or eight months before the competition, I was like, shit, this is real. What the fuck have I done? Do you know, what I mean, I've got myself in this thing up against like grown men. I was practicing 10 to 12 hours a day, you know, relentless, every single day. And, you know, the week before the competition, 12 hours a day. You know, my mum and dad were going fucking crazy. You know, I spent, <laughs> you know, I'm there at like midnight. Like, they're like, oh, man, can you just turn it down? Like, I've got it in the headphones. They're like, yeah, turn it down. <laughs> Shit, okay. So, I mean, I, I maintained that kind of attitude like, at the peak of my sort of battle thing for... You know, three or four years, 10 or 12 hours, even if yeah. I had nothing to rehearse for, a gig, you know, hours and hours in the room. So mm. 
people say, oh, you know, how'd you get like that? The only thing I'm going to say is practice, right? Yeah. You've got to be prepared. And at a young age, it's really easy to do that. You're living with your mum and dad or, you know, there's other, you can, you can be at university and get a loan and fucking bunk off all day. But, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it's practice. You know, if, if people say to me now, why don't you know what you should enter this competition or that competition? It's like, man, I would need three months solid practice, right? Who mm. the fuck is going to pay my bills? Because yeah. when you get older, you ain't got that luxury of, of saying, mum, uh, what's for dinner today? Because I ain't got no fucking money. I've just so, spent it on some new fucking 45s that no one cares about. <laughs> so um, the other thing that really interests me is, like, uh, you know, you mentioned the word battle. And yeah. there is this uh, incredible, fierce rivalry and competition between all these teams. I mean, it seems like there's a community and you all respect each other. But when it comes down to the to the... The, the actual game you're playing. Yeah. I mean, it is really vicious in terms of everyone wants to win 100%, right? Man, I could tell you some fucking stories, but I can't. But trust me, in, the, in, <laughs> in like the early days, right, those rivalries, there weren't none of this like boxing thing where you, you know, shit talk each other and everyone's really good friends behind the scene. People were getting fucking hurt. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> those rivalries are real. At one point, I turned up at a competition and it was, you know, it was a, a regional qualifier. I had to get first or second to be able to go into the UK final. I gambled my entire life on this moment and there was... Another DJ who was older, a bunch of his people turned out, and there was a near riot in the venue, right? It was mm. fucking crazy, just before I'm supposed to go on. Mm. So I've done it. I've got I've got the second place behind DJ Reckless, so, you know, I got my place in. But the next day I had a phone call from DMC, and they're like, man, <laughs> that shit happens again. You can't enter the competition. I'm like, what the fuck? I said, look, it ain't me fighting, right? I said, people want to get rowdy. That's, that's fine. But, yeah, in the early days, and because a lot of us... The only thing we had to lose was our reputation, right? Mm. So a lot of us were like rough-house little street kids and we suddenly become somebodies from nobodies and we ain't letting go of that. You got any friends from that period or were you kind of... No, none. No, they all fucking hate me. (laughs) 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 All of my friends that I've got now, they've been with me for 30 years. But it's funny, like over the last sort of 10, 20 years where I'd see people that I'd, I'd battled... Or, you know, at the time it was intense competition. But now it's really good now. We talk about it and laugh. You mentioned the, the, the technology moved on a lot as well. I yeah. mean, I, I definitely found that as a DJ. I, I, I just don't do the MP3 thing and all that because I don't enjoy the yeah. feel of it. I, you know, I, I enjoy yeah. the feel of records. I like, I like, I don't even mind carrying the bloody things around because I enjoy Yeah, the no, you just whenever. get used to it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> So much has changed now. And when I now watch videos on YouTube of, of DJs today, uh, this is something more akin to production now. With these mixers, yeah. where they're, they're, they're instantly queuing stuff. They're not changing yeah. the records. It's all no. Serato and Tractor and that. Yeah. How, do, how do you feel about that sort of stuff? When it first came out, I was like, man, what the fuck is this shit? Dude's got a calculator in front of him. <laughs> like, fuck it, what are you, a DJ or a fucking accountant? When I started to see the possibilities of it, you know, I'm game for it, right? Mm. I, you know, things evolve. We can't just be sitting there saying, I'm the best DJ in the world because my apex skill is mixing two records together. It's like, fuck off, man. Just shut up. But there is, I think at the moment, we're still finding our feet with that technology. And uh, when you said, oh, it's almost like production, I think for turntablists, that, that was the next logical step, you mm. know, to... For me personally, it's to try and incorporate production 
in your end product and a lot of that's being done now but i think in battles there's a massive reliance on just hitting that button rather than changing the record or you know queuing it up i mean i don't think they're massive skills now but i think what it's done is is to leave a lot of catch-up where people are just they're seeing a video of some guy with the same equipment and they're going to do the same thing and it's like i'm going to do it better for me it ain't about doing the same thing as someone but better it's about doing what you do which is nothing like the next guy do you know what i mean it for me the words of the immortal cash money are originality will prevail and that is for me the biggest thing being innovator not you know, not a follower that's bullshit i'm curious about that like what kind of style started to emerge when you were in your bedroom practicing for 10 12 hours a day like what became your sort of unique shtick in the early days of entering dmc it was because it was a mixing competition right and people were starting to have this argument saying oh everyone's doing scratching you know it's not djing and i wanted to 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 marry the two together you know i wanted to be able to say look i can mix but this is what else i can do so it was like a like mixing started to be hybrid style like instead of a long running mix i would be cutting the beats to sound like that beat and then with one hand i could bring the other record in i mean my, my, my scratching techniques i started to get a bit ahead of the game because when you're standing around for 10 hours in your room sometimes you get a bit bored and you start thinking of stupid shit like just messing around or your mates and it's like what's this and then something comes up where you're like whoa, whoa, whoa hang on a minute and there everyone the room goes quiet everyone's like shit you do it again there's your technique and you know that that technique's just been bored no one else is doing it and when you know when you pull that out in front of people uh, with me a lot of the time it just goes above their heads because it's so weird or so different mm -hmm. but you know it's that for me is is really the beauty and the, and the thing you need to do is just stand head and shoulders above and beyond rather than just constantly chasing the dude in front so that one day you can finally overtake him how have you overtook him by just doing the same shit but cleaner that's not that's not really what it's about for me mm -hmm. It's been lovely to talk to you, and uh, thanks very much for telling us all about it and about. That's the, all right. Thank you for asking me on. So, what's what's next? You've got this digital project for yourself, and uh, I presume you're still working with Steel Devils. Yeah. What, what, what have we got in the pipeline for yourself, and and where can we catch your mixes and stuff? Right. Well, you can catch me on Mixcloud under uh, DJ Random. That'd be D E J A Y Random. Uh, the Steel Devils are also on Mixcloud. Uh, you can catch me on Instagram, on Facebook, same spelling, same sketch, same fucking life-draining videos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, lovely to speak to you, as I said, and thanks ever so much for talking to us today. And, uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing. I certainly will do. Wiki, wiki! <laughs> <laughs> Had to be done. Uh, that's all right. Tom, Thank that's you.
Today's guest is a musical legend famed for bringing electro music into the pop consciousness. He was uh, given his musical moniker by none other than Andy Warhol and was a stalwart on the New York scene and a familiar face at Studio 54. His first hit bridged the gap between electro and hip hop and inspired a generation. He reached number four in the UK charts with a timelessly sexy banger in celebration of the male stripper. He's worked with the likes of Kraftwerk, Art of Noise, Yellow Magic Orchestra and Arthur Baker and in later years road managed the iconic disco group The Village People. He's back now with a new album which we're excited to chat about and he'll also be sharing his phonographic memories with us. Welcome to What Goes Around Man Parish. Wow, that's a great intro. And that, if you're legendary, does that just mean you're old as fuck? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> it can mean you're old as fuck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, when you're a legend, that means, you know, they wheel you out in the wheelchair and they give you that trophy for just being alive. So thank you for that honor. <laughs> it sounds like you're, it, it almost sounds like you're tired of being called a legend. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. This uh, I'm gay and this young kid, once said fuck you queen and i said honey i'm 63 years old i'm not a queen i'm an empress and empress is overruled queen so shut the fuck up it's not so if there's something above legend if there's a legendary empress or a legendary legendary keep going i'll take greek it goddess greek goddess <laughs> yeah. I think that's yes greek, uh, uh, slightly plus size model greek goddess is what it is aren't <laughs> <laughs> the greeks you're supposed to be voluptuous and round well i'm right there so yeah i'll take over plus size model greek goddess i'll take <laughs> perfect perfect <laughs> we're going to talk about your your um your new record we're excited to chat about that but we've also asked you to pick um your phonographic memory so let's dig in because the first one that you've picked is uh, possibly i think your your biggest hit from 83 hip-hop bebop Tell us all about this one. How did it come about? Because I'm guessing it must have really blown some minds when it came out. There was nothing else around. It sounded like in, 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 including mine. Um, I don't. I still can't read or write music. And it was, I don't want to say tone poem or an experimental piece of music, but I didn't know how to read or write music. So I just worked from rhythms. I knew how to make beats as the kid, as everybody says today and i had synthesizers before computers and i knew how to kind of get them to all kind of sync together and it was just, just an experimental piece of music uh we had been doing other records and we went to a place called the fun house in new york where jelly uh, john jelly benitez uh, spun and we were in the dj booth and kids were all of a sudden i heard this barking come from out you know on the dance floor and i said what the hell was that they said you know, when, 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 when people like it, they'll hoo, 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 bark. And I said, we should put that on that experimental piece of music and it'll be artsy fartsy, you know, no one will like it, but it would be cool if they played it here because we would be barking back at the kids that were barking and we just want to blow their minds <laughs> just for that one club. That was it. Uh, there was a girl that hung around and she had black hair and, and um, uh, hairy armpits. We used to call her the skank and her t-shirt said, <laughs> I'm Madonna. A t-shirt said, I'm Madonna. So she used to hang out there too. Um, and we put the record on and apparently it blew up because I, bar I barked back. <laughs> <laughs> that, that record really didn't sound like anything else going on at the time. Uh, you know, when you actually played that out, it must have confused a few people on the floor, no? Well, it confused me because I came from Depeche Mode and Kraftwerk and things that had structured music. I can't read or write music, but I wanted to have 
I wanted to be Erasure. I wanted to be Azu. I wanted to have that stuff going on. And when this came out, I said, you can't release this. There's no verse. There's no chorus. You know, there's no, what's, what's, what's the lyrics? Hey, ho, don't stop, bebop, hip hop. Let me take you back. It was done in my bedroom and there was eight channels, eight tracks. So there was a drum on one, a bass on two, a synthesizer on three, so on and so on. And we just we bounced it up to a 24 track machine and we went to do lyrics. I just done a whole track of hey, two, three, four, hey, two, and the other one, ho, two, three, ho, don't stop, don't stop. For like, you know, looking at your watch, you're doing five minutes of that. And they took multiple different pieces. And I think we had something like five or six, 12 and 10 inch reels, uh, a mastered versions. And they went back to the record company owner's apartment, dropped acid, did coke and beer over a weekend and edited it together. Yeah, they played me. I said, you can't put this out. And he goes, too late. We sent it out. And all these DJs are really excited about this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I have to have a song. Everybody's going to laugh at me. And for many, 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 many years until the 90s, I didn't understand what people got. Like, I don't, you like this song? Like, like what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I want to almost say it's almost the the sound between the notes, it has like a feel and a darkness and a depth to it. And that's what's kind of going on in that record because it isn't, it's no, uh, you know, Beethoven symphony or anything like that. It, it, it's kind of like a, you can't put your finger on it, but it's like this interesting space of sounds. Mm. You know what I mean? And, it's and, just and, cool. And, I, I think it's just like, it's just, it has an edge to it and there's just something really cool about it, which has stood the test of time as well, which is kind of magnificent for, you know, a lot of stuff from that era. Oh, that, 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 that's just me being cool. And no, I think I'm it must kidding. be. Well, you, you know, when you have like, there's that record, there's Boogie Down Bronx, there's uh, from that era, there's groups like Two Sisters, which I did, and then Male Stripper and all that. You don't sit down and write a record. I, I, I wish it was a vending machine. You put in a, you know, a, 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 you know, five pence and out comes a, a hit song. You just kind of do your thing and either people get it or they don't. So that was one of those things that kind of stuck. 
You know what I mean? People kind of like went, oh, now when I look back on it, I was one of the first people to use an 808 drum machine um, because you could program it. And it was very, very new. There were no computers. There were no sequencers. There was no way to synchronize any of that. So I had to lay it in by hand, stop, start sequencers. And like two flashing lights, they're eventually going to go out of sync. So when it starts to go out of sync, you roll the tape back a couple of bars and one, two, three, four, punch in while I'm hitting start on the drum machine, which was running a sequencer. And that took hours and hours and hours of work across my whole album until synchronization and MIDI, which is musical instrument digital interface, if you don't know, uh, became uh, available. Wasn't even available then. So, you know, that was... uh, that was a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's funny. People say, oh, you know, analog is so cool. And I wish we had all that stuff. I mean, you'd program a bass sound and then walk away and come back tomorrow. And that bass sound suddenly sounded like a harp because the oscillators <laughs> drifted, you know, and it, it, it was torture. And it's like, you kids are crazy. Go, you know, go get a digital synth and, you know, but I'm actually doing an album now, which I'm going to call Manalog, Analog with an M in front of it. And I'm going back to all the old sequencer analog stuff, you know, but it's virtual, but it's analog. It's, it's, it's waveform for waveform analog circuitry, you know what I mean? So I'm building modular synth sounds and going back to Georgia Marotta sequencers. I hate Italian disco, but that kind of stuff, you know, whole idea of that. Can we talk a little bit about the, the, the context that, that your music came out of? Like, what was your musical life growing up and what led you to, to start okay. making electronic music? Well, I was going to be an actor. I went to high school performing arts where the music movie fame was, and I got thrown out for being me. <laughs> you have to elaborate and, um, on that. Please, yeah, Mr. Oh, uh, I, I, got, I don't know if Freddie Prince was popular over there. We had a, a show called Chico and the Man, and he got thrown out the same day as me. I was pulled into the principal's office, and she was this big butch thing, and she said, you ain't going to be shit. You're in my school taking up space for somebody else. And I said, fuck you, you big bull dyke. And she how dare you talk to me? And I said, Everybody knows you're eating Mrs. Shine's pussy on the fourth floor. And she's like, <laughs> you know, so I didn't think I was going to get back after that. Yeah, but that the, would, um, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but the, uh, um, uh, the girls in the office were cracking up when I, when, it, when I walked out, cause you know, you have to go through the outer office to get out. And I went downstairs and he was on the front steps and he said, well, I don't know about you, but I've got a life to live. I said, me too. My friend got me a job at the Metropolitan Opera House and I stood on stage for $10 a scene, uh, 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 holding spears, you mm. know. And so I learned theater and drama and music from there. So my music was weird. Um, I think the first album I bought was like Grand Funk Railroad because instead of paying $10 for an album, they had a double album and I didn't know what the hell I was buying. <laughs> but earlier than that, I mean, shortly after that, I... Um, I'd listen to Emerson, Lake and Palmer, which I couldn't stand, but I listened to it for the synthesizer, you know? And then when I left home, I left home very early at 14. um, I was trying to find, how do I find, I can't buy a record. How do I find synthesizer records? And in New York, they had um, libraries with um, turntables and, you know, records. And I would go to the electronic music session section and I'd listen to Stockhausen and John Cage and, all that kind of stuff, music concrete. And then Wendy Carlos, Tonto's expanding headband, Mm. all that synth stuff. Um, I built my very first little synthesizer and 
back then smoked a lot of weed and um <laughs> i had black light posters and incense and one of those lights where when the heat comes up it turns the outside of it and oh, makes yeah. projections all over the walls you know what i mean i was a love child and i was making all this stuff and recording it so I, I didn't know it was called ambient music. I just called it uh, sound sculptures. But that's how I kind of learned music. I was interested in pop music. And as the 70s, obviously, went to clubs, disco music. But I was always more fascinated by Georgia Marauder and synthesizer stuff and then tried to emulate it. So that's sort of my background in music. Uh, at home, I had a piano lesson, a couple of piano lessons. We had a piano in the house. It was out of tune. My mother and my father would play it horribly and the cat would run away, you know what I mean, <laughs> kind of thing. You know, so would I. Uh, so I, I went to two piano lessons and I told the teacher to go fuck herself and she hit me across the knuckles with a ruler. I may have been a problem child, I'm just saying. <laughs> I may have had an edge to me, I don't know. An issue but, problem uh, with authority, that's the pattern I'm seeing here. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> we used to hang out at Max's Kansas City and CBGB's at the very beginning of the punk. I mean, uh, Blondie was a, a bartender and got up on stage. Aerosmith used to come down from Boston in their van. And then at the end of their show, we'd, we'd go down the stairs and park the van right outside. And they had no underwear with their decks hanging down their legs. Going, hey, baby, you want to fuck me? You know what I mean? So Aerosmith, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I've seen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, we saw, we saw Ramones and Talking Heads. So I came out of a rock and roll thing. Uh, of course, I was a Bowie fan and yeah. um, worked with my friend Cherry Vanilla. And she worked with him. And then later on, ironically, I was managed by Tony DeFries, his manager. And. I went to Bowie's house before that and snooped through his underwear drawers and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I, it was, I was glam, I was punk, I was rock and roll and electronic. So, you know, uh, yeah. I was the only guy in New York that had a synthesizer and a studio that would charge you $10 or $25 or $50. So the world, Klaus Nomi and all these other groups came to me to record. Amazing. You know? It's interesting as well that you, because you obviously went and, and, I mean, you go to the library to listen to this stuff. That's that's kind of an interesting. Well, there was no internet, but yeah, there was exactly. no uh, iTunes and no yeah. and, and no Spotify. That was the Spotify. I'm talking about 1974. Yeah, I'm taking yeah. when oh. I listen to um to to hip hop bebop. You know, if you took the beats away, it kind of is an ambient record in some ways. Because it? that's all that I knew how to do. That's mm. the only thing I I, I um I struggle with. And, and had shame of not being a musician. So mm. I, that's why if you look at my social media, it says Man Parish Artist. It isn't being pretentious. I don't want to say Man Parish Musician because I don't know what key half that stuff is in. I do it all by ear. I mean, I, I could score a 200-person orchestra and, and choir, and if they said, can you move that to the key of A, I'd panic because I don't know how to do it. Mm. So um, it's more of an craft an art craft without being obnoxious about the word art that it is music where i'm a gig musician and i can mm. play my play my keyboard i'm not a keyboard player i'm mm. a synthesist i guess if you have to use a word but i just take sound and i put them together because that's what i know how to do we've talked to a my few... god i'm amazing aren't you I? are you're good <laughs> I'm, yeah. like, I'm good yeah, keep it. Too bad, too bad. I don't believe it because then I stop doing music. <laughs> I thought we all agreed you were beyond beyond legendary. Yeah, you're, you're a Greek. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. 
Uh, no, a plus size Greek god, plus size model Greek god. <laughs> On this show, we've had a, had a few people from New York around sort of the, the mid 70s to early 80s. We had uh, Lydia Lunch on. And, yeah, uh, sure. She was, she very much talked in the, I mean, her thing is a punk rock thing and uh, performance poetry and stuff. I know. You know I know very much in the same sort of way, in that art, it seemed in New York at that time, was totally weaved in yeah. with music. Well, maybe, so, so, you know, the East Villages where all this stuff happened in New York on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And in those, you know, there's a joke. Uh, we still have an apartment there, my husband and I. You're more likely to trip over a Prada bag than a homeless person or a punk these days in the East Village. Mm. You know, in those days, if you had purple hair and, you know, uh, you know, you're a man in a dress, you go, oh, OK, hi, how you doing? Now it's like, oh, my God, that freak is a danger to society and cancel them. <laughs> You know, so um, I, I tell a funny story about going to a party and I and someone said, what do you do? I said, well, I, I kind of do music. What do you do? Oh, literally, I paint pictures with blood and feces. And I was like, oh, that's cool, because, you know, it was just you did your thing. You know what mm. I mean? You know, so they didn't say it was babies feces or blood from, you know, unborn children. You know, I mean, but it was like, okay, you're a freak and you do stuff too. That's cool. As long as you're creative, you know what I mean? You didn't care what you did as long as you kind of did something. You weren't just wasting time. And there was a group of us. You know, Keith Haring was a friend, you know what I mean? And uh, we hung out with uh, Andy Warhol. We'd see in, you know, Studio 54. And I remember going back to the designer Halston's house and I'm sitting there and Bianca Jaggers on one side, next to her is Truman Capote. On the other side is uh, uh, um, my friend uh, uh, Linda, and the other side of that is uh, you, you know like uh, Halston, and 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 I could drop names like you know mm. like crazy. But it was like we would they were just creative people hanging out. It, mm. it 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 wasn't special. It was just New York was New York. You either in rock and roll, uh, disco, jazz, or um, you know. Basically, that was it. So if you hung out with your group, it was small. There weren't many clubs. You ran into the same people all the time. If I went to CBGB's, I'd see Lydia Lunch or David Byrne or somebody like that. They were just they were just there. I was just going to say, I mean, when we spoke to Lydia Lunch and we spoke to uh, Adele Brute about this as well. And like, I'm curious to ask the same question of you that we asked them, which is like, do you get tired? People romanticize that era of New York so much i mean it's such a, a small period of time but people just talk about it and reflect on it it was highly productive yeah. and it was okay to be creative it wasn't like you're you're wasting time you're not part of society what where's your corporate job and your 401k and your retirement account it wasn't about that it's what can you do creatively that's interesting because now you're an interesting person so it wasn't one or two or fake Beyonce's who wouldn't know the key of C like me. Well, I'm sorry, but it's true. You know what I mean? I mean, the, the, those are manufactured people, which is fine. You know, she does know how to sing and she's got some things, but she has a team behind her. Take that person and put them in the studio alone and walk out and, 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 and she's not going to write music and all that kind of stuff that other people do. Back then, you, you, I lived in a loft space with no heat. And I swept floors of an art gallery and uh, we showered with cold water. And I slept on a shipping pallet with a mattress that I found in the street. My God, it probably had 
you know, rats pissing on it for all I know. <laughs> but, but yeah, and I had no money and I would ask a friend, can I quote unquote borrow $5? They knew they weren't getting it back and I would get peanut butter and a can of soup and live on that white bread for a week. But I was being creative. I was drawing, I was painting, I was writing music. I, you know, I was involved with other projects because everybody was like that, that I knew there was a whole subset of people. So people romanticize about it because it's unlike today. I love being online. I mean, I just, I'm buying my new virtual reality gaming computer so I could fly flight simulator through Kabul. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> I mean in photo realism. So, but being on a lot of kids online are cool. And I like that they're gaming, but it's different. We had to, we didn't have internet. We didn't have cell phones. So we had to socially act. If you wanted to go out, you went to a club and you hung out with your friends for four hours and you talked and you said, why don't you come to my place? I'm doing something. Maybe you can help me with it. I need extra help, you know? So they romanticize about it because there was a tight personal, cult, mm. literal connection to people. You know what I mean? Not that I don't have it now, but it was, it was, it was, you know, in 3D in front of your face. I, I, now I'm not sad that it's not here anymore and I'm not one of these you know back in the old days kiddies you know we used to actually call each other on the phone you know um, <laughs> I, 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 we had to see each other I'm not about that you know I'm a techno freak you know a, a first a first user of technology but um, they romanticized about it because it was very social and it was very fluid and it was very creative it's very interesting that you um you seem to get this this mix of people as well. And certainly Studio 54, you hear a lot of tales about people. I remember Donald got... Trump coming in and everybody goes, <laughs> 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 There's a fabulous picture of Divine looking over her. Yes, I've seen that. That's fabulous. <laughs> right, right. I was supposed to do, right after that, she died and I was supposed to do music with her. But I remember they, remember him walking in and seeing that. It's like, Ugh. You know, but oh, um, wow. that was that Studio 54 was different because those were the Glamazons. You know, they were there. We didn't have social media then. They were the beginnings mm. of social media. You're here because you're fabulous. Why? Mm. Well, because you have this name. Yeah. Well, what do you do? I have a name. I, I, wait, wait. I, do you paint with feces? No, <laughs> I'm Bianca Jagger, Mick Jagger's wife. And what do you do? You get fucked <laughs> in the ass from, by, by him? Is that your claim? Well, uh, what do you do? You know what I mean? What's your art? My art is my name. And so uh, Studio 54 is a weird example of it. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, Low East Low Side, Keith Haring was tagging uh, stuff on the subways. You know, John Michelle uh, Basquiat, I can still pronounce his name, you know, was doing his artwork, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, I know somebody who knew Andy Warhol on a tighter level. And when he did those Campbell soup cans, they were done as a goof, as a piece of performance art. And then suddenly everybody reacted to it. And he went, wait a minute, people love this. Let me do more. And that started more of his career. You know what I mean? Before that, he was painting and sketching and doing paintings. Mm. But the silk screens and all that, suddenly people went apeshit over it, you know? So it was the creative people uh, which is a lot different than the Studio 54. So I just kind of like wanted to let you know that and that's set yeah. it straight. What I was trying to get at was that there seemed to be a lot of mixing between very, very rich people like Holston and Warhol, all these people had made a lot of money and a real street. Because etiquette. it was cool. It, it, it was cool to hang out with the underdogs. It was cool mm. to, you know, Back then you had a black friend. Now you have a gay friend. You know what I mean? Like, I'm cool. <laughs> you know, uh, I have a black friend. See how cool I am. You know, I have a gay You know, they used to call it slumming. You know, the rich people would come down to the lower side and walk through galleries, smoking a cigarette, 
I don't know what this is, but all I know is it's cool. It sure beats going to Bloomingdale's or to Tiffany, darling. You know, and these kids were like, huh, you want to give me money? I'll pay something for you. There wasn't all the bullshit that you have now. What tribe are you from? Are you a hipster? Are you a Gen X? Are you white? Are you black? Are you trans? You know, you just are who you are. And if you doing something good, you're even better. You know mm. what I mean? But if not, you're okay. A- unless you were from the suburbs and then we shunned you. <laughs> Which was horrible. <laughs> we used to call it the bridge and tunnel crowd. You know, the pocket books oh, on the dance floor. That's the only thing we detested because we ran away from those environments because we used to get beat up or or tortured because we were different. But, yeah. uh, you know, other than that, if you were cool, nobody cared. It's great as well that you've, um, with your second choice, uh, you've taken yourself out of this kind of, you know, sleeping on a on a, a mattress found in the street area, and then you're working with ballet, and you know, a, a really, yeah. really becomes a, a quite a highbrow journey. You will tell us about your second choice. Uh, you, you're talking about Requiem for a Queen. Well, that yeah. is, is recent because that's a 200 person orchestra and 200 person choir, mm-hmm. which is all synthesized. Mm-hmm. you know, in my studio. So, but back then in the seventies, um, I did some ballet stuff because I was hanging out with a filmmaker and the filmmaker said, well, can you do some music? I can't afford to pay. I'll give you $10, $50. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, I'm get my music in a film. No one's going to see it, but we'll play it one evening at your house when we're having hot a casserole dinner and we'll project it on the wall. <laughs> and all right, I did the music. Well, it wound up in the Museum of Modern Art and part of their permanent collection because it was a cool little piece. And that spread to a second film and then to a, ba- a ballet back then. I'm going to brag. Right, <laughs> I'm, right, the only right. musician, I'm the only musician to be in the Museum of Modern Art's prestigious permanent collection. Um, oh, no. They did, a, they did a, um, a, a thing about a cafe society type of place that we had in the East Village. And the museum wanted to look at it because Keith Haring was there, me and other people were there. So... The, the curator from the, 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 the Museum of Modern Art came up to me and I went to see the exhibit and he, man, Paris, I said, he goes, um, I feel weird, but can you sign my, auto- can you autograph my record? I'm like, you're the, you're the curator of MoMA, you know, you, you're dealing with the Rothschilds, you know what I mean, and the Rockefellers, and you want me to sign your, I'm sure. And he goes, by the way, I wanted to get you in my permanent collection, but I couldn't because you're a musician. So we took these film scores in your hip hop bebop video. And I just want to let you know, you're one of the few musicians in our permanent collection. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Can I blow you right here? You know what I mean? I, I probably you. would have said yes. And I probably would have done it as a piece of art, as a piece of performance <laughs> art at MoMA. Come over here to the spotlight, you know what I mean? <laughs> the permanent yeah. collection indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, the ballet stuff that happened later, I just found out recently I did a piece of music called Requiem for a Queen, which is another piece of music. And the reason I chose that is a lot of people go, oh, Hip Hop Bebop, 1983. Have you done anything else since? And I'm like, yeah, I have 120, 130, 140 tracks on, you know, uh, 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 iTunes and stuff. Uh, I had shut down for 10 years because I never got paid for my music. And it hurt me and fucked me up so badly that I didn't want to do any new music because any music that I did, they were taking away from me and I wasn't making a penny on. Mm. So why am I creating music to give to somebody else who bought a plane and, and, and a Porsche and, and a house in the country when I was literally sitting there on welfare? I remember one day sitting there on welfare one evening 
and my windows were open in Brooklyn. It was hot. And a car came by with my music blasting out of it. And I thought, I have public assistance food stamps and, and I don't have a pot to piss in that this guy's got all this money. So I shut down for about 10 years, but then I just started doing music again for myself. And uh, Rec Room for Queen is something that I did for myself. But this uh, ballet company said, wow, this is great. We want to do it. So that's the ballet stuff. But I don't consider myself, I'm not, I'm not Madonna or somebody, Prince or somebody who only does pop music. I enjoy the other stuff. And the ballet came from working at the ballet at the Metropolitan Opera House. And I tell people when I write a piece of music, please listen to the headphones because I envision a stage. And is the music in your face? Is it further away? Is it to the left? Is it to the right? Does it move? So I kind of have this weird theatrical eye in my head when I write music. drama queen okay let's put it that way it's got to be drama otherwise i'm not interested so recreation for queen is basically like that and you know hopefully they'll play it at my funeral when i finally croak you know <laughs> i want everybody to cry and listen to my music we should have loved him when he was here listen to what he did he's amazing how do we, do we let this go by? Listen, me and Anna are going to show up at your funeral, head to toe in black, veils, yeah, no, the whole yeah, world. Weeping, weeping. No, I want you to wear the blue veil, like like in uh, the Fifth Element, the tall, you know, <laughs> the, you, you go, yeah, and, and you I roll skates or, or a Segway, so you float in and people can't understand oh, yeah. while you're not moving, you're just, you know, yeah. floating in. Yeah, it's got to be like that. I don't right? upstage yeah. you. If we roll in in blue veils on uh, honey, a Segway, is that not uh, 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 Listen. I'll probably be in a coffin, but knowing my boyfriend, he does hair for like really high-end uh, Jennifer Lopez and stuff. I told him as a joke, I want to be, the inside of the coffin has to look like Liberace's curtains. You know what I mean? Yeah. It has to be ruffled and overdone and put me in some tacky sequenced, you know, sequined, you know, like like gold lame <laughs> thing and all that kind of stuff and have a mirror ball <laughs> hanging from the coffin. You know, let's do this. Because <laughs> funerals are only for the living. They're not for, you're dead. You're not there. I just want to look down on that and go, oh, what a mess. <laughs> you know, you want people to envy, envy whoever's in oh. the coffin. Well, yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, yeah. envy they look at least. I could go for a gold lame tox. I think it'd be very well, jealous. It'd be fabulous. Yeah. That and the Not lame, sequin. sequin. Sorry, sequin, sequin, sequin much class. You know. you know, you're dead right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> After I've gone, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, as they put me into the ground uh, and they, they, they cover it up, I want I want Lost in Music by Sister Sledge to play really loud. Oh, great. That would well, be a well, good what, final what tune, I, you know. Uh, so, what I'm hoping is uh, as they lower me into the coffin, you know, your body fills up with gas, right? When you die, and I'm hoping I let out this royal fart as they're lowering me. It's like, what? What? Who's? Does that come from the coffin? And I'll be like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> He's outgassing. <laughs> Amazing. That would be memorable. I love it. Hey, listen. 
I'm a survivor of physical, mental, and sexual abuse as a child. Um, uh, my mother was schizophrenic. I had physical and mental abuse. I ran away from uh, a doctor who sexually abused me for three years. And then I ran away from home from all that and went into New York City at 14 years old and went into Central Park, didn't know I was in the main cruising area, the gay cruising area. And who's going to pick up a 14-year-old but a pedophile? Why don't you come back to my place? And, oh, yeah, we, I was taken to other states to men you know, who had other young boys. I mean, they were eight, oh. nine, 10 years old. Some of them didn't even have pubic hair. It's time to play, you know, they're ready to get naked and have fun, you know, and they'd sit around like old creepy men masturbating, watching us. And I was like, this is fucked up, but, oh, I'm gay. Well, this is what must happen. You know, this is older men take care of younger gay boys until they're ready to get on their own. And it's normal for a 50, 40, 30, 40, 50 year old man to have a 14 year old boyfriend it's just okay. normal because that's that's what i was told is normal oh, so geez. i may have a few i may have a f i have more issues than readers digest <laughs> but i'm <laughs> but but i'm in therapy and it's working it out and i think that's driven a lot of my music i was gonna know? say um, has your has your music oh, been yeah. informed oh, by yeah. those awful experiences oh yeah oh yeah 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 would you I, say I, it's I, like a catharsis for you or do you do yes. you all those feelings into your music I know if I don't do music, I get, not whack, I get anxiety. Mm. I mean, I may seem like Mr. Cool sometimes, but I, 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 up until recently, I, well, three, two, three years ago, I had debilitating panic attacks because I was dealing with all this stuff and suppressing it. And I didn't remember most of it until one day a friend of mine called me and she said, you know, I, I was sexually abused. And that night I had a dream and a lot of the stuff came back and I went, wait a minute. I was with that guy who took me around to different states in the U.S. We would drive for six, 10 hours to go to other men's house. And he used to get that. In those days, porn would come in a brown envelope so you couldn't see through it. And they all had young men, uh, old men and young boys in it. And I'm like, I'm putting this together going, oh, my God, he, he was a pedophile. And I was part of this pedophile ring, you know. Oh. And here's what's even more fucked up is I put the story up on YouTube, Man Parish Stories, that's the ORA. And I talked about being a male prostitute for six months, which was hysterical because I was like a therapist and I felt bad for these guys. And, you know, I remember one guy said how much I said 20 bucks from a bar. He took me home and gave me like 50 or 60 bucks. And I'm counting the money and I went back and I knocked on his door and said, excuse me, sir, but you gave me too much money. And he said, you're not going to live, survive out there. Let me get you into an agency. So oh. that's what I said about six months. But um, uh, 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 looking back on this stuff, I mean, it was, if you know a 14-year-old kid, or if you have one, or if you have family, or if you remember yourself, I was out in the world with nobody. And, you know, I was gullible, young, stupid, young, dumb, and full of gum. <laughs> <laughs> probably but, quite but, precocious but, as well, because when you're 14, you probably, you know, you kind of think you're grown up, and that you know the no, world. No, 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 it wasn't no. that. It was survival. It was yeah. definitely, uh, I couldn't stay being at home because I was being my mother tied me to a radiator and turned up the steam, you know, and because she was mentally ill. Well, through therapy, I realized she was mentally ill. She was schizophrenic and she wanted me to be perfect and she would do anything for me to be perfect. So I'm using that as a way to go, well, okay, if you're mentally ill and you want your kid to be perfect, you're probably going to beat him until he's perfect. It's not mm. my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, but at precocious, I, I, 
they used to call it, now they call it ADHD. They, they used to call it hyperactive in those days. And thank God they didn't drug me. They didn't have the drugs because I wouldn't have been able to do the music that I do and the, and, and the uh, uh, craft that I do. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a man parish artist, I'm a man parish musician. And I, I once wanted to take those pills and thank God I had a great therapist. And he said, I know your music. I know who you are. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> and he said, if I give you this stuff, it will dumb you down. You don't want to take Prozac or Paxil or whatever these, uh, you know, uh, anti-anxiety drugs, right? He said, it's going to dull you down. And would we give Beethoven, you know, <laughs> you know, medicine because he's got anxiety? No, you know, chop your ear off and take yeah. painting, baby. You know what I mean? Because you're creating good stuff. So, yeah. Uh, you know. What's great to see, though, and considering all of the things you've been through, is you've still got incredible joie de vivre and you're still enjoying making that music and this new album yeah no out. longer queen empress dowager empress i had to go through all this <laughs> i had to go through different husbands and conquering nations and then i'm sitting up there in the forbidden city you know with a, with, with a couple of chopsticks in my head and yeah. white, bee stung tiny little lips with white pancake and that's right <laughs> yeah, i mean I, we're listening through the new album i mean I, for me personally like um i still play male stripper on a regular basis yeah. and it uh, oh my god you poor thing no, it <laughs> it's such a banger you need therapy you need therapy <laughs> you need th what's great is people younger kids they don't know what the heck is coming their way do you know what i mean and then suddenly it's like well, for a well, buck, you, you know all this sort of stuff. well you kind of have to it was different culturally where you were than where we were right mm -hmm. we, we had done the free and open sex and all that kind of stuff england was still a little Tight. It was, it was <laughs> shocking. I, we were we were like blown well, away. Exactly. Exactly. First time I ever heard of a male stripper. I, I know. I know. And we were on the BBC. We did, we did top of the pops, and, and they said no, no shenanigans. And when they lifted their shirt, <laughs> I mean, the country exploded. The the phones rang, and we were banned. And as you know, back then, if you were banned, like Sex Pistols or something, you went to number one or four yeah. or whatever, ever and wound up. And now you were legends. You know what I mean? So. um for us, that was just like, yeah, I was a male prostitute and a stripper and all that kind of stuff, um, you know. So it was like, yeah, but so were my friends. <laughs> you know, so what's the big deal, England? You know what I mean? It's a male stripper. Come on, get with it. Get with it. Wake up. With this new, with the new album, we all squat the pee. We all squat the pee. <laughs> With this new album, you've uh, you've gone back and looked at that track again and given it this like sort of very I'll modern tell you high what. energy feel. I'll, tell, I, I, well, I'll tell you what. So I was embarrassed with Male Stripper when it first came out. I was doing records for Paul and Mickey Zone, and uh, they used to have a group called The Fast in in in, in the U.S. and uh, uh, in New York and played at Max's Kansas City. Like this 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 pop, very fun pop upbeat, you know, garage band, and it was great. I, I loved out of all the bands, I loved it. Then later on, I moved, lost my loft because a record deal and all, whatever, whatever. And I moved back to Brooklyn and Paul lived in the neighborhood at his mother's house. And, hey, Manny, you remember me and Paul from the festival? Oh, yeah. Hi. I you know, love your music. And we have a group called Man to Man, M-A-N, number two, M-A-N. And uh, we'd like you to be part of it and do music. And I went, OK, great. And I think I made $50. I got $50 to buy a $25 or $30 reel of tape and the extra 20 bucks at that time was probably for a pack of cigarettes, a couple of cigarettes and mm -hmm. get through it. And we did the record and I remember doing vocals and they did strip for me, babe, strip for you. And I'm rolling my eyes around going, holy shit, please don't put my name on this. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, 
People are going, I mean, this is so fucking cheesy. You know what I mean? Um, but they have the lyrics and, um, you know, I came up with, um, you know, that, 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 and I basically sat there and did most of it and they did the vocals and it went away. They had a little record label called Wrecker Records and they were putting stuff out. We did, he said, what should we do next? I said, why don't we do Greystones? I need a man, but I, you should get in drag and do a video and we're just having fun. It's silly things. You know what I mean? A thousand records, 500 records. It was just stuff to do. About a year later, I, I, somebody calls me up and says, you know, your record's number eight on the UK pop charts. I said, what record? Hip-hop, bebop is long gone. Male stripper. I said, I never did male stripper. They said, oh, yes, you did. And I went, I didn't. And I look on the chart and it says, man to man, meet man parish. Never asked me for my name. Male stripper. And I had to dig around and I went through cassette tapes because that's where I keep copies back in those days. And I played, I went, oh, no, 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 We've been meaning to call you. I'm like, I'm, the mail. I'm just going to put the tip in. You know what I mean? All that. I won't stick it in. I said, we got a problem. All right, we'll split everything up. Why don't you come to London? And that was a whole fiasco because my friend had just died in Boy George's apartment. Uh, Michael oh, Wodetsky, yeah, that, that, that was that whole, that, that, you know, that whole mess over there. George hid. And when I got off the, uh, the plane, the um, mad queen, young 20-year-old publicist told everybody that I was fucking Madonna. And I get off of a plane. And I was in sweatpants and a T-shirt with, like, my hair pressed on one side from sleeping. And Manny flies to Concord like that because the Concord had just landed. And they were like, we have to speak to this guy. Who is this? You know, and he's fucking Madonna. 
and we had to, we had we, we, you can find it elsewhere. The interviews where I talk about you know how they asked me you know how does Madonna get to my house? And I have a maid called Beulah who wraps her in a rug and <laughs> sneaks her into the back door of my house and her cord. And, you know, and Sean Penn is called a poison pen. And I have scratch marks all over my back from Madonna from the second. And we spent all week running around London eating for free because we had always booked it out. We had no money. I was staying in Earl's, Earl's Court at like some cheap little place where you had to put five pence in the wall to get the heat to come on for like four or two hours or something like that. You know, and here I am all over the front cover of the papers. In fact, I remember sitting on the tube and somebody had news of the world and read on the front page and said, Madonna longs for my baby. And there was a picture of me on the bottom that I carried on for a week. You know, and and then we had to have another news thing where uh, uh, I was caught cheating because I I said, this has to stop. I'm going to get sued. So they um, uh, they put me in bed with a girl and and a hotel where the balconies were connected. They rented the room next door and let the... The, the photographer come in and he came out on the balcony and we left the window shades open and took a picture of me cheating with Madonna and it was wow. over. But, but male, so male stripper was great because it got my name around. It, yeah. it, it was all over the world, except for America, because we're smart enough not to buy a record like that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I love this record. I, always, I love this record. I know, I know. But it's always bothered me. So that's why I redid it on the album, which is a dark Depeche Mode kind of version, mm. because that's kind of like where my dark heart is. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's deeper and darker on this album. And that's why I did it. You know, and, and I don't make a penny for it. And when I told Paul, hey, it's been like a year. You've never paid me anything. He wound up buying his own uh, a condo in Manhattan, very high price, all the money he made. And I said, Paul, this is not fair. Please don't make me get a lawyer. So he took my name off of it. If you look at the new versions, it just says man to man. It doesn't say man to man. So he, he wiped me off of there. Am I a bitter queen? Yes, I'm a bitter queen right now because That's I did all this work for free and he made all the money. But um, so I decided to redo it how I wanted to do it. Mm. And it's just a different look. I, I, it's a shame well, you don't get the money, but, yeah, but you do well, get the, the money. money. You do get yeah, the adulation because we yeah, love as you for result, it. Oh, thank you. I wish we could have little hearts going up on the screen right now. <laughs> no, no, really. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, it's the fact that people like you come to me and ask me for interviews that's worth any, any amount of money. You know what I mean? At least somebody's listening. And this is how I get paid. But, but by somebody doing an interview with somebody saying, hey, I like your song. You know, the money's great. The money would have gone, but th- this stays here and this is important to me. And because of Male Stripper, I finally learned that there's also a business side of music. And I hope if anybody's listening, you, you, you do the creative side. And if you, can, if you don't have somebody you can trust, uh, you know, a, 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 a wife, a husband, a manager, and even that has to be careful. You have to learn about the music business and it's not that hard. But so because of that, I've got all the rights to all my music back. And mm-hmm. I'm finally releasing my own music and putting my own stuff out. So well, I've learned the business side of it. That is a glorious place to finish up on, I think. Thank you so much for talking to us at What Goes Around. Well, thank you. Whatever you say, I will love that record to the day I die. <laughs> and I, I hey. wish you all the success of the new album. Listen, you know, uh, opinions are like assholes. Everybody has them. Thank you for, show- Thank you for showing us yours. There Very you diplomatic. <laughs> I'm a lady. I'm a lady. <laughs> oh, man, Parrish. What, a, what so an absolute much. joy to speak to you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of What Goes Around. Did you enjoy it? We really hope you did. We work hard at this podcast to make it an enjoyable listen for people like you who love music the way that we do. If you have friends who love music as well, one brilliant thing you could do for us would be to tell your friend about What Goes Around podcast, friend or friends. If they're a music lover too and you think they might enjoy this pod, just uh, pass the name on to them, let them know, share the word on Twitter, on Facebook, spread uh, the love around because really that would mean a lot to us to get the word out there, to get other people listening uh, and enjoying the podcast as much as you hopefully did. If you want to send us an email, whatgoespod at gmail.com. We are whatgoespod on uh, all social media platforms if you want to check us out there and we will catch you next time for the next episode. Yeah.